Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thank you for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Ravi Park, CEO and co-founder of Airplane, a developer platform for internal tooling that's raised over $40 million in funding. Ravi, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building there at Airplane, could we just begin with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, as you mentioned, I co-founded a company called Airplane. We've been working on this for a couple of years. By way of background, prior to that, I worked for about eight years on a company called Heap, which I co-founded back in 2013. So I started Heap with a friend of mine from college. It's an analytics company. And so we were basically building web analytics, mobile analytics for to track user behavior. And we started that company in 2013. I'm an engineer by background, so spent most of my time there in the early couple of years building out the product and getting those initial users. But I actually spent most of the time after that, the next four or five years, scaling up the go-to-market team. So I kind of did everything at the company, um, helped build out the product, but then scale up the go-to-market team, um, helped grow the company to about 200 people over the course of about eight years, left that company in 2020. That company is still around. There are about 400 people today, and they've kept growing since I left, but then moved on and, and started a new company called Airplane, which is a developer platform for building internal tools. And so we've been working on Airplane for a couple of years. I'm working with a friend of mine named Josh, who was previously CTO of a company called Benchling. And so, yeah, that's maybe the quick one minute summary of kind of what I've been working on for the last decade or so. And what was it like to leave your previous company? Was that a hard decision to make? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you work on something for about a quarter of your life. It's definitely a difficult decision to stop doing it. But yeah, the reason I ended up leaving. So we started Heap in 2013. I was you know, a couple of years out of college at that point. I never started a company before, had never even really worked a, a full-time job before, uh, to be totally honest. And a friend of mine from college had this idea for a product. He was working on it already. He pitched me on it. And he said, hey, we should work on this together. I thought it sounded like a great idea. So it was a lot of fun in the early days, a lot of learning. It was just that sort of building things from the ground up, solving problems from the ground up, really finding product market fit. I got a lot of joy out of that. As we started scaling the company, there was all these like challenges and interesting new things to learn along the way. At some point, though, the company got to a level of scale where it was less about solving new problems from zero to one, and it was more about sort of scaling what already worked. And that's also interesting. I think that's also a a deep intellectual challenge, but it's something that wasn't as natural for me. And so after doing that for a couple of years, I kind of decided, hey, you know, there's people out there who have scaled SaaS companies to hundreds of millions in revenue, people who've done this before. We could probably hire somebody to lead, go to market much more effectively than me, a first-time founder who's never done any of this before. And so we ended up hiring a COO in 2019 um, who came on board and very quickly took on sales, marketing, customer success, all the stuff I'd been doing before and did a much, much better job than I'd ever done, to be totally honest, like scaling and building those teams. And so I stayed on for another year to make sure I transitioned everything over fully to him. But at that point, I felt like, you know, my real joy is in building things from the ground up. And so um, decided to finally leave in sort of summer of 2020 and then left the company and almost immediately started working on something new. And so it was a tough decision, but I think it was the right decision, something I definitely don't regret at all. And I think it was also the right decision for the company as well. I think Heap has done really, really well without me. 
Yeah, we had a guest on the other day who had a very similar journey and how they described it was empire building is a lot more fun than empire managing. So when yeah. you got to the point they're spending all their time in, in management meetings and things like that, they decided to step away and, and do the same thing and just start a new company and go through that kind of fun process and the fun challenges that come with just doing something new. For sure. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Now, a couple of questions that we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and CEO. First one is what CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Yeah, there's no single CEO that I admire the most. I think there are a number of CEOs and founders who there's elements of what they do that you can learn from. So I'll mention a couple. I think Parker Conrad at Rippling has done an incredible job scaling that company. And so Parker and I actually were in the same Y Combinator batch together when I co-founded Heap. He was co-founding Zenefits at the time. And he ended up you know, scaling Zenefits really quickly. They kind of hit some road bumps. He ended up leaving. Uh, he ended up starting uh, Rippling. I think they did a really good job of... The thing I admire about Rippling, the company scaled super quickly. I think the level of ambition for a SaaS company is something that I really admire about what Rippling does. And so Rippling, if you're not aware, is like HR and IT software, basically they do like payroll and benefits, but then also things like identity management for your employees, all that kind of stuff. And it's very much like an all-in-one sort of platform that a lot of startups are increasingly using to sort of do their back office. And I think, you know, most startups start with like a single differentiated, highly specific idea. You know, you say like, oh, we're going to do payroll really well for SMBs or something, and then we'll add on other verticals later. I think Rippling from day one had a really ambitious vision and built it out really, really quickly. And the level of speed with which they execute and the level of like ambition that the company has had is something that with Airplane has pushed me to say, hey, maybe we can actually do more than we think we can do. Uh, maybe we don't have to build a super thin product. Maybe we can build something really ambitious and expansive. And so I think that's been something I've admired. I think Mark Benioff has done an incredible job scaling Salesforce. And so I think Salesforce is a good example of a company that, despite its name, I think it's like an incredible marketing company rather than a, a sales-led company. And I think it, they did an incredible job really early in their life cycle of defining themselves as sort of in opposition, like they were one of the first true cloud companies, one of the first SaaS companies. And so they, they leveraged that to tell a really differentiated story about the value they could provide. And in the early days, they sort of had this sort of provocative thing saying that they weren't software. Obviously, now that sounds kind of silly, but at the time, software was associated with like big, expensive stuff bought by your IT department that arrived on physical CD-ROMs or something like that that you'd install manually. And their thing was you log into a web browser and start using it right away, and you can put on a credit card. And that sort of thing is just a really... That positioning was very provocative. And I think they've done that continually throughout their life cycle. Obviously, that's not the tagline they use today. But Benioff has always done a really good job of amplifying the little things that Salesforce does differently into big differentiators uh, in terms of their marketing messaging. So those are a couple of people I try to learn from, but there's there's plenty of others as well. Yeah, with Mark Benioff, I read his book a couple of years ago, and it was such a great book and really just walked away with that idea. Of you need to have an enemy. You need to declare war and pick a fight with them and then rally the troops and, and rally the team around that. And he just did such a great job with that, with their war on software. And they were doing, you know, fake protests against software and all these funny ad campaigns. It was, uh, it's definitely an interesting look. And I, I think there's a lot of takeaways from that. And then on Parker Conrad, you know, I, I followed his story a lot yeah, as it was unfolding. And I listened to a podcast with him a couple of months ago. And I think it was his first, you know, like real interview he had done since everything exploded. And he just talked through like that personal pain that he went through because there was a, a while there where everyone was, you know, 
telling the story without his side of it. They were kind of making him look like he was the bad guy or incompetent in some way. And they really made him almost like the villain of the story. And the fact that he was able to persevere through that and come back with something even bigger and better than Zenefits, I think is just really inspirational. And I think there's just a lot of interesting things to learn from him. For sure. Yeah, uh, definitely agree. He also just had some crazy story, right, with the funding round. I think he raised like, what was it, 500 million in 12 hours, something insane like that. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it was an insane amount of money to be raised in a very short amount of time. And I think there was just definitely a bit of a hype frenzy around it for sure. Yep. Now, what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder? And this can be, you know, one of the classic business books. But what I find most interesting are the the personal books that really influenced how you view the world. Yeah, it's a good question. To be totally honest, I don't read a lot of business books. I'm not a huge fan of them. They're kind of long. And I think you can usually condense down most of the learnings into a blog post. So it's been a while since I read many business books. And in terms of like non-business books, also just don't make the time for them these days, to be totally blunt. There's just a lot going on. I would say one business book that has sort of stayed with me over the years, I probably read this about a decade ago when I was kind of starting to scale up Heap and starting to hire people. One of our investors recommended this book and it was quite helpful. Probably a book you've heard of before, High Output Management by Andrew Grove, former CEO of Intel. And so the book is like, it's a lot of stuff that sounds kind of obvious, but it's not obvious when, when you're first getting into management or starting a business. But a lot of it is about like, you know, thinking about management as a science, not just this like vague thing you have to do. And so it's really about like, you need to have measurable indicators of the outputs of what people are doing. You need to have like defined standards for what it is good or good performance looks like in your organization or in your in your department. Meetings need to have an agenda. They need to have a sort of goal that you're trying to achieve in the meeting. So many times like these sound like such obvious things, but so much of what tends to happen in a business by default, if you don't get really deliberate about this stuff, is that people just kind of tend to react to things. You know, like an email comes in and says from a customer or from a from a recruit or something, and then you do something with it, but you're not being deliberate really about like, okay, what are we actually trying to achieve at the high level? And so I think it's just like a good, it's a book with like sort of a good framework for how to think about management, for how to think about running an organization, for how to think about running a team. I think it's sort of useful to almost anyone, even if you're not a manager, I think it's useful to just get a sense of what it looks like for the organization to be performing well or poorly and, and how you fit into that. So and that's a book that sort of stuck with me over time. I think it's a good sort of foundational business book. Yeah, it's really fascinating how that's you know, stood the test of time as well. I think that was published in the 80s or something like that. And yeah. I read it a few years ago. And like, it's still all very, very relevant today, which is just fascinating that you know someone could write something like that in the 80s that still applies today. It really is a good reminder that you, know, you can really boil business down to some core principles that are the same regardless of the period of time, regardless of the company. Yeah, at the most basic level, it's very, very similar stuff. For sure. Now let's switch gears and let's dive deeper into Airplane and and everything that you're building there. So can you just start with the origin story? Yeah, basically, we started Airplane in 2020. The reason I started Airplane is because it sort of addressed directly a pain point that I struggled with at my previous company. And so at Heap, Heap is an enterprise software company. We sell analytic software to businesses. And as a part of that, we would often have situations where customers needed things from the product that the product didn't directly provide. So to be concrete, Someone might talk to us and say, hey, I've been using Heap, but I accidentally installed the tracking API incorrectly. And there's some like junk data in my account. 
I need to delete that data. And so someone from our team would have to go in and sort of run a script or a query to sort of delete that data on a one-off basis. Or they might say, hey, I'm migrating over to Heap from another analytics provider. I want to import my historical data into my account. Can you do that for me? And so again, we'd have to kind of dive in and do some like one-off work to do that. And these kinds of things added up over time. By the time I left Heap, you know, there was just a constant stream of customer requests that would come in to read certain data or write certain data or edit certain things in their account that would just come up over and over again. And in each of these cases, our customer success team would have to escalate these issues to our engineering team. Someone from engineering would have to get involved, run some script, run some query, something like that on a one-off basis. And it's led to a status quo where customer issues took a long time to resolve because they were kind of being bounced around between multiple teams within Heap. Engineers were being interrupted constantly to solve customer issues on a one-off basis. And like there was a sort of game of telephone happening. So we actually didn't end up solving the issue in the right way some of the time. Uh, and it also is just a sort of like dangerous kind of unsafe way to do things. If you're constantly running one-off queries and scripts against valuable customer data, there's always a chance of sort of a mistake or, or something bad happening if you accidentally run that script at the wrong parameters, all that kind of stuff. And so this is kind of the status quo at Heap. When I left Heap, I was kind of brainstorming with a friend of mine named Josh, and he had recently left his company, Benchling. He was CTO of that. Benchling is also a, a SaaS company. They sell life sciences software. And despite being in a different vertical in a different space, they had a very similar set of problems where customers would ask for things that weren't in the product. People on the customer success team or support team or solutions team would have to resolve those things or escalate them to engineering. People on the engineering team would have to get involved. And so as he and I were talking, we kind of realized that despite being fairly different businesses, the core set of problems was the same, that one-off engineering work was often required to resolve customer issues. And this one-off engineering work was taking up an increasing share of the time that engineers spent rather than those engineers spending time you know, building core product features and, and the really valuable stuff. And so that core pattern, we realized that we could build a framework that would resolve a lot of those issues. If we could take these like one-off scripts and queries that needed to be run over and over again and sort of put a UI around them, put permissioning, notifications, approval flows, all these kind of safety and usability features around these one-off operations, we realized that as an engineer, you wouldn't have to do that anymore. You could hand it off to somebody else on the team, on the customer success team, whoever, to be able to do, do that themselves. So we, we saw Airplane as a, we saw the core idea as like, can we build a, a set of primitives that allows an engineer to take a one-off operation that they themselves are doing and turn it into a reusable enterprise-grade internal app with minimal work? Because if you did all that yourself, it would be quite a bit of marginal work to sort of add all that functionality in. And so that was kind of the idea. And so we started brainstorming that a little bit. We pitched it to a lot of other friends of ours at other companies and realized that this is a fairly universal problem. That small companies, big companies, everywhere in between, there's sort of this constant need to sort of build internal tooling, to sort of do these internal workflows and stuff like that. And we figured that by giving the right building blocks to engineers, they could sort of automate a lot of this stuff so they don't have to do it over and over again themselves. And so that was kind of the idea behind Airplane. So we started the company in December 2020 formally, but a couple of months leading up to that, we spent a lot of time sort of interviewing people at a variety of companies and just getting more conviction around the idea and how it should work and all that kind of stuff. So that, that's kind of what led to us starting the company. It really just comes from solving a pretty big personal pain point that Josh and I both experienced previously. And can you talk to us about that journey to finding product market fit? And do you feel that you're fully there? Do you have product market fit or where do you think that stands today? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, to me, product market fit is one of these like hard to define terms. So yeah, I think that initial idea hasn't changed. It took us a while from having that initial idea to really having any sort of semblance of product market fit. And so we had that idea in sort of late 2020, we started working on it. 
we didn't really have any customers on day one. It's sort of a technically complicated product to build. So it took us a few months to even have a prototype that worked. And at that point, we kind of pitched it to a few friends of ours, people who we had talked to when we were doing the idea validation stage, and we got a couple of them to use it. So we did get a couple of early customers kind of in early 2021 who were sort of using it with their teams and getting some value out of it. But I wouldn't say we really had any sense of product market fit then. One thing we did end up doing is once we had a few of these early customers getting some value out of it, we launched the product in July of 2021 publicly. And that was actually, I think, in retrospect, we should have done that a lot sooner, but we learned a lot from that launching process. We A lot of people signed up for it. We got a lot of feedback on it. We People found bugs and errors in it, all that kind of stuff. And so that allows us to sort of iterate really rapidly after that point. Even then, I think for the next year, we always had like a steady stream of people trying out the product and in some cases paying for it and buying it. But it still took us a long time before I think there was any real repeatability around that. What would happen is people would sign up for the product, they would use it, they would like it in some cases, but Airplane was still not a complete solution to a lot of people's problems. And so that willingness to pay wasn't necessarily there. People thought of Airplane as kind of a nice to have, sort of a nifty thing that solved a few small issues for them, but wasn't quite a complete solution that they would sort of like justify a large amount of spend for. And so the Delta was, you know, our day one, what Airplane did on day one was you can take a script, like a Python script or a TypeScript or JavaScript script or something like that. And you can deploy that to our platform and we'll overlay like a UI on top of it so that someone can go into the airplane UI, fill out a couple of parameters, hit execute, and they'll run the script in the background. And so this was useful for automating these kinds of like compute heavy, write heavy operations that were really common at my previous company at Heap, at Josh's previous company, Benchling. But they didn't actually cover the whole gamut of what people wanted to do with a platform like Airplane. So for the most part, people wanted to do They did want to do things like that, but they also wanted to do things like display data or allow people to read data as well and sort of like do lookups and things like that. And while you could technically do some of that stuff in Airplane, it was fairly complicated to do so. The other big problem was that the onboarding process was a little bit annoying. It took a while for people to actually like get started with the tool. And so over the next year, we heard a lot of that feedback and we built out a lot more of these kind of building blocks in the product so that people actually could build out all those kinds of like views and UIs in addition to the kind of script-based, compute-based workflows. And it took us a while to get to the point where within Airplane, you could build you know things that were compute-heavy and write-heavy, but also things that were read-heavy and, and visualization-heavy and fit them all together. And so that set of building blocks took a while to develop, but really around like late 2022 is when you kind of had all those pieces in place. And that was the point at which we started repeatedly signing more enterprise customers and things like that. So I'd say now, probably I would consider us to have some semblance of product market fit. It's really hard to say these things except in retrospect. I think at Heap, I can pinpoint the things that we shipped that led to us having product market fit, but we didn't realize that that was the case until a couple of years later that you look back and you're like, oh yeah, obviously that's when when it happened. But when you're living through it, it's not like there's a day where the switch flips and everything changes. So that's kind of where I'd say we're at today. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And as I'm sure you've experienced that both companies landing those first paying enterprise customers isn't easy. So tell us about landing that first paying enterprise customer. And and you don't have to name names, but can you just walk us through what that experience was like and, and you know what you think you did right to really get that first customer to trust you? 
Yeah. So Airplane is like a, a freemium product where there's like a free tier, there's a self-serve tier, which costs like, you know, a small amount of a credit card. And then there's like an enterprise tier. And so we had kind of the, when we launched the product, we had like, actually when we launched the product, it was totally free. But then about a month after we launched it, we, we introduced the paid plans. And so we immediately had a few people pay on the self-serve tier, you know, on their credit card. But that's not really a lot of money. You know, we had, you know, a handful, a couple dozen people pay $10 a month on their credit card. So we didn't have any enterprise customers quite yet. But then, you know, someone signed up. Uh, this was probably, I think, I want to say like October of 2021, something like that. A little bit after we launched, a couple of months after we launched, they signed up for it and they reached out and they they told us they were interested in the enterprise plan. We didn't even reach out to them. And so I got on the phone with them. I said, like, you know, here's, here's what you get on the enterprise plan. Uh, and they're like, yeah, that sounds good. We're going to test it out for a week. And then they did. And then after a week, they're like, okay, it sort of fits our needs. It does what we need it to do. We, we like to move forward. And then so we quoted them a price. They agreed and they signed. Honestly, what we did right was really two things. One, I think we had a good product. And I think number two, that we made it really easy to self-serve and try it out. So it wasn't really a complicated sales process. I hadn't, didn't have to do a whole lot of convincing. They just need to get some comfort with how the product worked and, and the feature set. We did do, I think, like answer a couple of questions about security posture and stuff like that. But really, I think like by virtue of it being like a product that anybody could sign up for and try out, I think that was really the key. And so very simple. Not every enterprise deal since then has been that easy, but that was the first one that we did. And so since then, we've signed a lot more customers on board. Sometimes it is that easy, but most of the time, there's a little bit more of an involved process in terms of structuring the evaluation and going through the security review and, and convincing leadership and all that kind of stuff. So but yeah, that was kind of our first enterprise customer. Nice. Yeah. And I see you have a bunch of others listed there, including Panther. We've worked with Panther and, and Jack there for the last couple of years. So cool. very familiar with that company. Now, are most of those big enterprise customers like Panther and their, you know, the unicorn startups, or are you moving into, you know, Fortune 500 and, and the larger organizations like that? Yeah, it's a good question. It's mostly the unicorn startups. It's mostly that. When I say enterprise, I'm not talking about Fortune 50 companies here. We use the term very, very liberally here. Enterprise for us is just like any customer north of a couple hundred employees where the seat count is going to be large enough where they're going to pay on the order of 25K to 200K on an annual basis, something like that. We're not doing million dollar deals quite yet. We're not at that market segment. We're not really selling to traditional companies. We're mostly selling to tech companies. I think this is just by virtue of the stage route as a company. If I look back to my time at Heap, today Heap is a super diversified company in terms of who they sell to. But for the first few million in ARR, it was all tech companies. You know, those are the typical early adopter types of the people who seek out new technology. They're they're the ones who are willing to take a bet on something that's a little bit unpolished. So that's who we sell to. Yeah, makes sense. And that's the journey that I've seen. Every startup that comes on who is reaching this stage, that's what they're going through as well. I think where they, you know, run into problems sometimes is when they start to try to cross that chasm and get into the laggards or the enterprise customers who maybe aren't so fast to adopt new technology. So as you prepare to make that jump, what's your focus and, and what do you think is going to be critical as you jump into those bigger enterprise deals? Yeah, it's always tough to do. I think you never want to get into a situation where you, where you overbuild for tech companies and then you aren't able to cross the chasm. I think uh, there's a number of things you can do. What worked well at Heap was that there are sort of tech companies you can sell to that are forward thinking. They want to try new technology. And then there are more traditional companies that reference those tech companies. And then there's even more traditional companies that don't care. So what I mean by that is like, and Heap, in the early days, we sold to a lot of like direct to consumer e-commerce startups, you know, companies like Casper mattresses that 
were like new and cool and venture backed and had a lot of like forward thinking product managers and data scientists and stuff like that working for them. And so they would buy it. And then more traditional retailers, some of them, you know, would look at something like Casper mattresses and say, hey, that's like a no name company. Others would look at it and say, hey, they're really innovative and we want to be innovative too. And so there are people who are more traditional who kind of reference these more younger, newer companies as sort of what they want to emulate, uh, especially people getting disrupted and stuff. And so at Heap early on, we close a lot of these D2C e-commerce brands and then eventually use it to branch over to more traditional retailers like Men's Warehouse and things like that. Similarly, we closed some cool insurance tech companies or fintech companies early on and use that to be able to sell to companies like Liberty Mutual Insurance, not that soon after or not that long after rather. So because those companies themselves were sort of seeing the disruptive impact of those startups and, and they referenced them. And so, and then, and then once you've closed a couple of companies like Liberty Mutual Insurance, then you can close the rest of the insurance industry as well. So that's kind of how we thought about it at Heap and, and how we're going to plan to think about it here at Airplane as well. And when it comes to market categories, how do you think about your market category? With Heap, it was a lot simpler. Analytics is a pretty tried and true SaaS category. There's a little bit of nuance there. With Airplane, though, I think it's a little bit more complicated. So Airplane is, at its core, it's software that lets you build software. So it's a developer platform that lets engineers build a specific type of internal tool at their company. And as a result, sometimes it's competing for budget with other platforms that help you do similar things. But other times, it's not actually sitting in that category. Other times, it's competing with um, an in-house initiative to sort of build things directly. The vast majority of companies actually don't use anything at all to build internal tools. They just build software the way they build anything else. They, they use a variety of open source frameworks or building from scratch and things like that. And so often it's not like you're talking to someone, they're like, hey, we have XYZ budget allocated for internal tooling platforms. That's very rarely something anyone would say. It's more common that they are sort of comparing us to the opportunity cost of having their engineers spend time and effort on building things in-house, which is good and bad. It's good in the sense of like, I think it's kind of white space. It's bad in the sense of it's not a sort of budget that's been pre-allocated. So in that sense, sometimes we don't get lumped in any category at all. We're just sort of like a framework that helps us build a certain type of software. Other times we do get lumped into this category of kind of, I'll call it like low code, no code startups. So there's companies like Retool or Bubble or AppSmith or Tooljet that all kind of exist to sort of also help you build internal tools, among other things. And we get lumped into it, but our approach is really different. The way that most of those products work is they're drag and drop frameworks for creating tooling. So they're actually usually what they do, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but usually what they do is they sell to line of business rather than sell to the engineering team. And so someone who's, let's say, on a customer success team could use one of these platforms to build software themselves, but without having to write any code. And so they're more of this like no code approach. So you could go into their interface, you drag and drop some elements onto a screen, and then maybe you do a little bit of like SQL queries to sort of like wire up the data and all that kind of stuff. Our approach is really different. We're a code-based framework. We sell to developers, but it's solving the same core problem. And so sometimes a company will evaluate us alongside one of those platforms and say, hey, do we want our engineering team to own internal tooling or do we want to try and have a non-engineering team sort of own internal tooling? And so in that sense, we're in the same, we get lumped into that same category, into that same discussion with them, but it's a really, really different approach with a different buyer. So that's kind of, uh, we sit in that category a little bit as well. And are you focusing on analyst relations at all? So, you know, are, are you working with Gartner to try to figure out which category to be in? Or are you working with G2 to figure out which category to be in? Or what's your general approach to analysts? Not really. I think we're probably a, a year or two away from that being super important for us, especially just because we're selling to tech right now. I mean, tech startups typically don't 
reference gartner or forester when they're making their sort of purchasing decisions for technology g2 is maybe a little bit more forward thinking we have good reviews on g2 we don't really do anything special to make sure we have good reviews there other than just building good software in general nice makes a lot of sense and obviously there's been a lot of funding going to developer tooling in the last couple of years and and i know it's very difficult to market to developers so if you just reflect on that, like what have you gotten right and what are you doing right and how did you rise above all that noise? Yeah, I think, I mean, really two things. One is I kind of mentioned we get compared to like these low-code, no-code startups. I think we've had a really disruptive kind of positioning against them by saying, hey, we're not no-code, we are code. Like this is a developer tool through and through. Even subtle things like it's an airplane.dev domain to access our website is an intentional choice. We do own things like the .io and, and stuff like that. So we could have done that if we wanted to. But we chose to sort of go for that developer first brand. There's code snippets on the web page when you go to and see it. When you log in and try the product, it says you got to install a command line utility to be able to use Airplane. So it's very much a developer tool through and through. And in some market segments and some market categories that would not be unique because there are plenty of market categories that are entirely developer tools. But in our market category, when developers are used to seeing things like Retool or Bubble or whatever, and then they come across Airplane, it looks really, really different. And so just being a developer tool at all is sort of a disruptive positioning statement in our in our market. The other thing we've done is like I think developers like to use things. They like to try things out. So we've been very deliberate about making this a self-serve product that anybody can sign up for, start to use for free. We try to give away a lot of value on our free tier. And then our documentation, we try to make sure that that's treated with as much care as our core product itself. And so a lot of developers want to read the docs before they dive into things and really make sure that they can answer their own questions without having to like contact support as much as possible. So we try to really stick to that ethos that companies like Stripe and others sort of pioneered. But yeah, those are, I think, the two main things. And last question for you, let's zoom out into the future. So three to five years from today, what does the company look like? Yeah, it's a good question. So I'd say like, we're still a pretty small company today. We're 25 people and you know we're continuing to grow and, and things like that. I'm sure if, if things go well, we'll continue to grow. I think more interestingly is like what happens to the product. As I kind of mentioned, like Airplane is a platform to build internal software and we sell to engineers. And so if you're a developer and you're buying Airplane, it's not like you have to buy Airplane. It's not like a payroll system. You know, like I have to have some payroll system. Otherwise, it'll be a lot of manual work to like file payroll every week. It's one of these things where if you don't buy something like Airplane, the alternatives are not that bad. You can build things in-house. Every engineer already knows how to write code. So there's a default option of just like writing code themselves. And so to adopt a third party like Airplane, to take that risk, that learning curve, all that kind of stuff, you have to have a fairly strong belief that Airplane is going to be a radically better way to build internal tools than your status quo, whatever that might be. And so it's not enough to just be a little bit better or to just have the right features. It has to be like, obviously, completely better. Obviously, for some people who we've signed on as customers that they've made that case. But for a lot of other people, people evaluate Airplane, they sign up for it, they try it out, they may even like it. But they may say, you know, this is cool, but it's not worth taking on another vendor, adopting a new tool, taking on that security risk, taking on that economic risk, when I can just build this myself in-house. And people do choose to do that. And so for us, like we are trying to radically improve that developer experience in Airplane every step of the way. I would say that most of our users think the developer experience in Airplane is okay. They, they think it's pretty good, but we think it could be a lot better. And so a lot of what we're doing right now, there's a number of things we're doing around like improving that uh, across the board. But one of the more most interesting things we're doing that I think will get exponentially more valuable as the underlying models progress is really just integrating AI into the product. And so Basically, the main killer app of a lot of these large language models is 
the ability to write code very quickly. So things like GitHub Copilot have gotten a lot of adoption and have made a big impact on a lot of developers. Uh, I mean, we want to introduce similar concepts into how people build things in Airplane. And so right now you write React code or JavaScript code or Python code to build your views and workflows and things like that in Airplane. If we can use AI to speed up that process by 5x, 10x, let you focus even more on like the differentiated value you provide as an engineer of really thinking through the, the business problem rather than like worrying about syntax or you know what exact documentation page in the airplane docs you need to reference, that's another 10x speed up potentially. And as those models get better and better, we can provide more and more value out of the box. So I think that's one of the big things that that will change the next three to five years for airplane users is that the experience of developing things in airplane will get radically simpler and radically easier, not just because of AI, but that's maybe the most flashy element of that uh, edifice. Every interview has to have the word AI in it now. So. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, this has been a lot of fun. We are up on time, so I don't want to keep you any longer, but really appreciate you taking the time to share your story, talk about what you're building and share some of those lessons that you learned along the way. This has been a lot of fun. If people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where should they go? Yeah. So a couple of places. You can just email me directly if you'd ever like to chat. I'm Ravi, R-A-V-I at airplane.dev, D-E-V. You can also just follow me or Airplane on Twitter. On Twitter, Airplane is just twitter.com slash airplane dev. And then I am just uh, twitter.com slash Ravi S. Parikh, P-A-R-I-K-H. So yeah, would love to hear from you. Amazing. Well, thank you again and wish you best of luck in executing on this vision. Thank you so much. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 